0: Welcome back to Split Country, I am Johnny Horsley, and today on the show we got Brandon Easton, and he's coming on to talk about DC Future State, Mr. Miracle, uh, Transformers War for Cybertrauma Netflix, and Transformers Galaxies for IDW. And Casey sat down and chatted with Brandon about all this stuff and more, so let's go ahead and sit back and listen to Brandon and Casey in their own words.
1: All right, everybody, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have writer Brandon Easton. Brandon has so many comics out right now. Uh, He's writing for DC Comics, Future State, Mr. Miracle, Transformers, War for Cybertron, Star Trek Year 5, Transformers Galaxy. He's got all that and a whole lot more. Let's get into it. Brandon, how you
2: doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty great. It's a long day, but I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, you just got out of like uh, you just got off work apparently, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm actually working with uh, Blizzard right now. And, oh, nice. Um, yeah, it's been pretty incredible, but it, it, <laughs> Blizzard keeps you busy. <laughs> that should be their actual motto. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's been it's been a great time, with great people. So yeah, I've just been working all day and looking forward to uh, chatting about stuff. Cool, cool, cool. So
1: you're you're in LA, but you're from the East Coast. Can you talk about how you got from, you know, from from the East Coast all the way out to LA, and what, what inspired you to get there?
2: Sure. Well, first things first, I was born and raised in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and, you know, I, I had a great upbringing. You know, I really, I'm my only child, so I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of doing stuff on my own, and when I was a kid, I used to go to the, well, my, first my mom and my dad and, and my family members would take me to the movies all the time, and as I got older, I went to the movies by myself, and one of the things that used to happen for me was that I would when the movie was over, I felt like the story should have kept going. So I would kind of come up to I would start creating my own versions of the movie I just saw in my head. And then I didn't realize at the time I was actually writing. You know? That's awesome. And uh, to make a long story short, you know, I didn't realize I could actually make money as a writer until way past my high school years and way into my college years when I had some really great writing professors who encouraged me and actually put me on the right path. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a long story and we'll probably, you know, bounce around as we talk about other things I've done. But, you know, to get to here in Los Angeles, I had moved to Boston, then I had moved to New York City and I had lived in New York for about almost like six, almost seven years. And during that time I was a school teacher I taught uh, US history and economics in middle school and in high school St Yeah middle school <laughs> actually I I always tell people this middle school completely destroyed any patience I had for human Oh being. dude yeah so yeah. <laughs> yeah so at the end of that although I taught high school at the end which was a completely better and different experience I moved to Los Angeles back in 2008 And from there, it took about three years to kind of get a gig. And my first Hollywood gig, as they would say, was the uh, Thundercats reboot in 2011. So I think that was pretty much a a very short version of how I got from back east to out here. But, you know, as I said, we'll probably, you know, dive into a couple little things here and there about my journey. So that's, that's the beginning of it. I hear you. Oh, okay. So I have
1: a few, like, just kind of prepared questions. You you got a bachelor's in sociology?
2: Yeah, that was so, my first degree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So how many degrees do you have?
2: <laughs> I have a bachelor's in sociology, uh, a master of fine arts in screenwriting, and a master of education in uh, secondary social studies education.
1: Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. My, my wife is actually, a t- she teaches kindergarten. But she has her up to her EDS in early childhood nice. education and uh, early childhood development. So she's she's like I'm the dumb one in the relationship, and I can <laughs> But yeah, it's it, that's dude, that's hard work. There yes, it, it was.
2: Yes, it was. Good God.
1: <laughs> so, so what what led you from from the classroom to to find what was the thing that that kicked your butt into gear to finally go like you know what this isn't for me
2: yeah that's a good question let me let me think it wasn't one thing there were a, a flurry a confluence of very different situations that occurred that kind of pushed me to the west coast one was that my principal who i worked for at the time she was not a, I, I don't want to you know disparage anybody, but I don't think she was a good person, personally. I mean, she played a lot of games, very political, and she did not support me. at ever. As a teacher. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? As, as a husband of a wife who was a teacher. Good God, right? So with that being said, that was one thing. And then and, 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 and on a regular basis, I felt that every time I tried to talk about the things I cared about with the people around me, I found that most people simply didn't care. Like they weren't into the art form of cinema or of screenwriting or of literature. And you know, New York City is a great literary city, but I wasn't working in a literary community, you know. Yeah. So, I found myself just being unfulfilled on multiple levels because I wasn't exactly happy as a teacher and I wasn't being taken seriously in the literary community of New York City. So, I had to do something because as you know, being the husband of a teacher, you know, if you're a good teacher or you know take it seriously, that job is just as you know busy as being a lawyer. You know, you've got tons of paperwork to do. You're always oh, trying yeah. to get better and so forth and so on. So, with that being said, I felt that I needed to go for what I really wanted to do in life, which is be a, a writer. If I could have stayed in New York and done it from there, I definitely would have. But it just wasn't the right time. I really needed to put together. A plan that would get me in front of the right people, and that required me to move into Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing. One of the first rules I read in a uh, screenwriting book was <laughs> rule number one: move to Los Angeles, because mm-hmm. it's, it's virtually impossible to um, play the game if you don't have the the board.
2: Right, and so and, and you know, and and you mentioned sociology. You know, sociology. For me, when I first got to college, I didn't know anything about the world other than what I knew about the world, which was nothing, you know? I was, what, 17? I didn't know anything about anything. So when I started taking, like, the intro courses that you have to take, you know, I started to really gravitate toward how sociology unlocked why things were the way they were. I grew up in Baltimore, and in my teen years is when the crack cocaine explosion hit the United States. and I watched my community, which wasn't that bad at all beforehand, just turn into a wasteland in like a matter of months, you know, and I always wondered why would this happen? Why are things this way? Well, I will tell you, taking sociology courses helped me to understand how and why people and societies do the things they do and how they end up the way they end up. And from that, I've taken a deeper look at how like how the framework of a society operates in our day to day lives, so sociology has helped me tremendously as a writer because I can put a I put an understanding behind certain events or certain situations.
1: Uh, you you mentioned the crack epidemic epidemic earlier. Mm-hmm. Just from a sociological perspective, here lately, there's been you know the opioid epidemic, and it's it's sure. Hitting. Have you? Has there been a lot of kind of like flashbacks to that for you just having experienced the the first wave of, of a debilitating drug drug epidemic? Mm, that's a good question. It's such a um, weird thing. So here's where where I'm coming from, because where I'm at, I'm in the deep south sure, uh, sure. and I have a lot of family in Appalachia. For the longest, I'm sure a lot of the people affected by the opioid epidemic always viewed a drug drug epidemic as something that happens to other people Mm -hmm. and now it's hitting home and instead of oh these people need you know to hit get hit with the book it's we we need to do something for them so it's really it's it's frustrating for me seeing um the complete you know about face when when it it's ugly, man. I hate it.
2: Well, you know, you, that's a fantastic question, man. I mean, that's an absolutely fantastic question. And, and I'll be happy to answer it. The opioid epidemic, the reaction to it is very different than the reaction to the crack cocaine epidemic, because they're both remarkably debilitating. And they're both destructive, like just like the, meth ep, like the, the, uh, the crystal meth epidemic tends to affect the same people that the opioid epidemic, you know. And one of the things I've learned over the years, is that the struggles of poor American whites is literally the same struggle as poor American blacks or everybody else. The, the issue for a long time has been that race has been used as a dividing line oh, or dividing sure. tool to keep the the working classes and and, and 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 you know working poor from coalescing and you know fighting the good fight together. And you know, there was a joke, it was a meme I saw. That was hilarious that showed the difference between lower class black or lower class african americans and lower class poor rural whites and their lives were literally the same and it talked about the love of guns the, dist- the, dist- the distrust of police <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs> running running moonshine or running drugs I mean, it was really hilarious but the point was was that when you really look at it it's like the lot li- American lives are basically the same lives, but I mean, there are, there are cultural differences and ethnic differences, but when you look at the core of it, particularly when it comes to economic class, there's a lot more in common than different. And I think that for all the, you know, cause I mean, I've, I've only visited Alabama once I went I've, I had a, uh, I spoke at the university of Alabama, Crimson Tide, you know, oh, cool. and uh, a couple of years back, it was beautiful there. I'd never been there before, but one of the things I had noticed is just that, you know, If somebody is in like, you know, the most rural parts of Alabama and if somebody is in the most broke down, beat up parts of the South Bronx or the Bronx isn't bad anymore because of, you know, gentrification. But there was a point like when the Bronx was a nightmare. And it's like, if you look at their lives, they have they all want the same things. You want a better life. You want your kids to be okay. You want to have a decent meal and you want to have a job with some security. Who doesn't want that? And I just feel that, you know, the reaction to the crack cocaine. Epidemic was to lock everybody up, whereas the opioid crisis, people are being a little bit more sensitive about. And I just wish that we had had that same sensitivity back in the late 80s because there was a lot of lives destroyed by mass incarceration and a lot of lives destroyed just by, uh, you know, uh, the, mental, the mental health impact of, of addiction, you know. So that's how I look at all that stuff.
1: Yeah, and again, I'm sorry for for going off track with that.
2: I just thought that was really really interesting. No, that's a great question. No, I, no, I appreciate it. No, honestly, it's like when I talk about when well, I do a lot of these podcasts, a lot of these interviews, and we we rarely get into the real world because we are talking about comics and science fiction and stuff. But I appreciate the question, and you know, I really wish people would get help, and I wish that the working the working class of America would just stop and take a look at each other and realize how much they have in common. And that's all I have to say about that.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's a perfect way to cap that off. One thing that you do as a writer, you, you do a lot of sci-fi, you do a lot of fantastical things in your books, but you can do, you can reach out to people through your work and, you know, give people some medicine, you know, some sugar with their medicine, basically. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of that lately in in television. There's been so much great television out lately that I'm guessing you've probably seen Lovecraft Country if you haven't. Get
2: a HBO Max member. No, no, I, I. Smokes, man. The crazy part is, I have every single streaming platform you can imagine, <laughs> and I have zero no time to watch any of it. But anyway, yeah. So did you, you had some other questions about the stuff I worked on.
1: Yes, yes. So, um, going to Transformers because that was one of the first things that you worked on. It's you know a massive franchise. Mm-hmm. What was your introduction to the franchise? I'm, I'm guessing you were roughly. Around the age of when that was like just starting up.
2: Oh, yeah, I was 10 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, Transformers and me, boy, I mean, I have to write I have to write a book about what Transformers meant to me as a franchise and what was going on in my life at the time. But in 1984, I remember why. I remember the day I saw the first episode, and I was completely blown away by everything I saw. I mean, I'd never seen a cartoon that was about a war and it kind of took itself seriously like it wasn't as it got sillier later but the first seasons it was pretty serious and it was very well done and I fell in love with it I mean I loved all the characters I mean everybody I'd I'd never seen characters like that I'd never seen a science fiction universe that took the idea of giant robots that seriously now this is before I discovered (laughs) you you have to understand this is before I discovered Japanese anime or anime you know which had giant robot stuff going way back to the 60s but as far as an American production I had no idea that you could tell a serious or somewhat serious sci-fi story using giant robots sentient giant robots who all had personalities and attitudes it was really cool so over the years it, it was always funny that Transformers always popped up again Whenever like some major event happened in my life, like Beast Wars came out when I was in college, you know, and then like the movie came out when I was living in New York, the Michael Bay movie, which, you know, I have different thoughts about that. But the bottom line is that franchise has been a part of my life since I was 10 years old and to be able to write so many, you know, issues and episodes and to work on that, that new show was just, it it was every dream I had come true. So, you know,
1: so. I'm sure, you know, you have your own babies and everything, but do you do you have a favorite version of Transformers?
2: Well, number one would be the original series from 1984, but I, I really do enjoy uh, War for Cybertron, you know, because they really, we really uh, were able to, to strip away any nonsense, no human beings, no, you know, jokes, no puns, and just tell the darkest, grittiest, most brutal, transformative story that, in my opinion, has ever been told. And, you know, that, that's my number two. So number one would be the original series, and number two would be the Netflix series. So who who's your guy? Who's your favorite character? I think Megatron was my favorite. is my favorite character, followed very closely by Optimus Prime. It'd be like 1A and 1B. And the reason I like Megatron is because... You know, the bad guys are usually cool and usually have a great motivation. And over the years, as they have developed Megatron, they've gotten into his backstory, which is like, they they showed it a little bit in the animated series, in the old cartoon, the original one, but the comic books from IDW, the comic books from Dream uh, Dreamwave back in the day, and what we did on, on Netflix, we were allowed to really tell a story about how somebody who was in the underclass, once they get to take over, you know, and defeat their oppressors, what what does that actually look and feel like? And that was really cool. And that's what really did seal the deal for me as far as Megatron is concerned. So how much
1: say did you have in the direction of your episodes when you were working on the uh, <laughs> Cybertron War?
2: Well, what happened is I got hired about, I'd say maybe 40 or 50% through the writing of the first season. There were some issues behind the scenes that I wasn't even aware of. But by the time I got hired, they were looking for somebody to write episodes four and five. Now, there were only six episodes in that first season. But I'd written four, I'd written five, and I thought it was over for me. And then I got a call from the showrunner, F.J. De, FJ DeSanto, who said, dude, you know you wrote this very well. Why don't you just wrap it up for us? So I wrote episode six. So I wound up writing four, five, and six. That's and that's
1: pretty awesome to get that. It, that's basically a nod to like, yeah, you can hang.
2: Yeah. I mean, That'd I was a a feeling. absolutely blown away. And I'm still, even to this day, completely blown away by what I experienced. So there you go. That that was my experience on the show. And that's my thoughts on Transformers. So during your Ultra Magnus or excuse me, during the
1: your show, Ultra Magnus and, and Impactor were, you know, there was some pretty <laughs> heavy stuff that happened. <laughs> yeah. What led to those decisions? And did you get any backlash from the fans? No. Um no. We did, we fans got no backlash. Or- oh, Jesus, they- man.
2: Before we get into before I answer your question, I have to do I have to say, because you brought up a very important point. You know, the problem with any multi-generational franchise is that you create a multi-generational fan base. And the problem with that inherently is that whatever they were first exposed to is what they believe is real or the best or the only way. There are some Transformers <coughs> fans. Star Wars. God, man. Actually, you know, I mean, Star Wars, you know, that's a whole different. Hey, I was... The best example I can use is Superman, but that's another conversation. But what I will say is this. Some Transformers fans go simply go too far. And as somebody who was a Transformers fan who used to go too far, I know what that looks and sounds like. <laughs> so you've been down that road yourself? Yeah, you know, I used to I get really <laughs> heated and angry and blah blah blah, but you know, I understand their love, but some of the fans, they seem like they take no joy from anything. And I don't even know why they're fans anymore because when you go to some of the big Transformers boards and websites, all they do is whine and complain and say negative stuff. And I'm just like, guys, do you even like, I mean, I have even posted. I've been like, do you even like the franchise? Like, do you even like Transformers? Like, why do you even post here? You don't seem to like anything, you know? So some fans have been extremely supportive. I mean, the overwhelming, See, here's the problem. And this is the problem with everything in our, in our society now. People use the internet to make themselves seem a lot bigger than they are, right? Oh, yeah. The trolls and the negative minded people have a, not, uh, what's that word? It's not, oh, I'll try to think of the word. I'm sorry. I just blanked out. They have this, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I just blanked out. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. This kind of, like, magnified. They have this magnified voice online. So, for example, the overwhelming majority of people who watch War for Cybertron, and we're probably talking about in the millions at this point, they love it. They say, I like it, and they move on. But let's say you have 1 million people who like it and 1,000 people who don't like it. The 1 million people who like it will not get on Twitter to talk about how much they love it, but the 1,000 people who hate it will be on Twitter for weeks on end talking about how much it sucks. And that's the difference. The trolls and the angry and the entitled, they are very loud. They seem to have a lot of free time to complain. Most people who love stuff don't get online to complain about it because they have lives, you know? And I feel that as a fan who used to get online and complain all the time, I learned that it's just not worth it, you know, because after something is done and as somebody who works in Hollywood, I can tell you, nobody in Hollywood cares what these people think online. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me on it. I worked on a Marvel show. I've worked on animated stuff. An worked excellent on, Marvel the, show, by the way. Oh my thank God. You. Agent that Carter Rock. Fantastic. Right. Thank you. But, but, but my point is, is that, I've worked on a variety of dif- within a variety of different franchises, and trust me when I say this. And I want everybody. And I'm not saying you can't critique things or not like things, but nobody in the system cares what anybody on Twitter says. And it's a bitter pill to swallow. But as someone who works in writers' rooms, nobody, nobody in a writers' room gives a crude crap about what anybody on Twitter says about the show they're working on. Trust me on this they just don't care. No one cares because there's still just enough people to support the show. And let let me explain this too. And I I I really want to give you a little bit more background on what I'm actually saying here. Most TV shows, in fact, all TV shows, even the streaming ones, depend on some type of commercial dollars, whether it be advertising dollars or streaming dollars, right? So as long as a show is made, and a network gets its ratings, and it gets its money from the commercial, you know, from the advertising, from the, you know, the, the products and the sponsors who want to reach a specific demographic, that show will keep getting made, no matter how good, no matter how bad it is, right? So what really matters is advertising dollars and streaming dollars. If those are impacted, then people will listen. But if a show is doing well, and the advertising money is, is rolling in and the ancillary money is coming in, meaning T-shirts and Blu-rays and DVDs and watches and lunchboxes. Guess what? Nothing anybody says will make a difference at all. And that's how the business works. And I wish every fan who whines and complains understood that. They don't get it. Because when I've tried to explain it, they still don't. You watch their brain explode. They just don't understand that, this, that television is a business. Movies are a business. They are not in the business of satisfying entitled fans. They just, they're, they're not. And there's no other way to put it.
1: I wish more people would go out and say what you're saying right now.
2: <laughs> well, people do. It's just that, like, for example, like I've, I've spoken at Comic-Con for, ten, well, other than this year. I've spoken, well, actually, I did speak on the you know, their virtual version. I've spoken at San Diego Comic-Con for 10 straight years, right? 10 and i've said what i just said to you on a panel that i run called the writer you can find you know video of it on youtube if you put in a writer's journey and my name you will find several of those panels recorded and i have said the same thing and some people get it but a great deal still don't understand that it's a business and that's what the problem is
1: so going, going back to, I'm really curious now, you mentioned writing for Netflix and also writing for television. Mm-hmm. The difference between writing the two, there's not really an impetus to keep the advertisers happy when you're writing for a streaming platform. Does mm-hmm. that give you a little bit more freedom with with your creativity, with, with making uh, the show that you want to do? make and the stories that you want to tell? Or is it is it just as, you know, restrictive occasionally?
2: Oh, wow. Okay. So if you're talking about a streaming platform, there are a lot less restrictions placed upon you in terms of content. However, you do need to make sure it's quality. And I feel that streaming platforms, not in general, but in some cases don't have the same quality control that abc nbc cbs or fox might have and or cw and when you have that quality control it's not just about monitoring content but making sure it makes sense for an audience there's plenty of great shows on streaming platforms but there's also some a lot of garbage out there because the showrunners have not been held to any standard whatsoever so when i have worked on you know stuff that's been broadcast on mainstream television you do have a stronger set of controls around you to make sure that you're not offensive and you're not breaking any law, any obscenity laws. And that sometimes forces you to be a lot more creative than just being able to show sex or being able to curse or being able to show somebody's head getting blown off, like you can do on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever. So that makes a huge difference. Because if like, for example, if The Handmaid's Tale was on regular TV, it would not be as brutal as it is, or they would have to find new ways to show that brutality. Oh, yeah. You know, for sure. And that's kind of my point, you know.
1: So we're going to go back to <laughs> to Transformers now. I, I just really had a, uh, that really was something that st- stuck me with the difference between writing for um, a streaming platform and writing for for what is ostensibly like, you know, advertiser television. So back to the the war for uh, the Cybertron war. Mm-hmm. Will viewers get a glimpse into the early days of the war and even pre-conflict? Is that something that you're wanting to explore?
2: No, I mean I'm pretty much done with any Transformers stuff right now. I mean, when the first of all, you know, War for, uh, the War for Cybertron trilogy, I am not working on any more of it. Okay. And and then when it comes to the Transformers Galaxy with ID Galaxies with IDW, the final issue is number twelve, and that wraps up. Pretty much all my Transformers work for the foreseeable future, which I'm completely okay with because I've gotten to do everything I've ever wanted to do.
1: They had some amazing teams on those books. Yes, so they are. They're, they're really, you know, batting a thousand with, with their Transformers series, and so I'm excited to, to see what they have coming up next. So can you tell us about your upcoming Kickstarter, Menagerie Declassified?
2: Oh, so that's what. Okay, so that's not actually mine. I am working with a good friend of mine named Ramon Govea, who is a uh, producer and creator, writer, the, whatever you want to call him. And he hired me and a bunch of other uh, writers, including close friends and colleagues. And in fact, Ramon has been on many of my panels at Comic Con over the years and WonderCon here in uh, out here in Los Angeles and um, Anaheim and San Diego, of course, of course. So. Basically, he has a science fiction universe that he created. It's all creator-owned by Ramon. And he's invited some of his friends and um, colleagues to, you know, contribute. And since then, it's been absolutely fantastic. Oh, cool, cool. Are, Are the stories interconnected on this? No, no, they 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 just stick over well. They overwhelmingly stick to just the 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 core setup of his universe. But he's allowing us to fill in some of the gaps, and that's where the fun comes in because he hasn't fully defined every single aspect of that universe. So we're we're coming in, and he's giving us giving us a lot of leeway and freedom to tell great stories as long as they make sense. You know, for adhere to the rules of what he's created. Awesome, awesome.
1: Real quick. I want to ask about future slate and if you can tell us anything about it, because Mr. Miracle is a property that I'm, I'm kind of excited about. So.
2: Okay. So you talk about, uh, so future it's DC comics, future state and the stuff I'm doing with boss's name, DC, Mr. Miracle and DC comics and all that stuff. How can I say this? It is, it has it been a dream to work for DC comics. I never thought that this year would be the year it was for me career wise. I got really lucky to get in on this at the right time. And luckily the editors like Jamie Rich and Brittany Holser and uh, Bixie Mathieu, uh, Matea, I, can't, I can't say her last name. They've been really great and they were really impressed by the work I did. And it allowed me to do some other work that I can't talk about, but, oh, um, nice. but the Mr. Miracle, as far as that's concerned, I'm doing the uh, third version of Mr. Miracle, which is Shiloh Norman who is an African-American mentee of Scott Free and Thaddeus Brown. They've allowed me a great deal of leeway with how I can portray him because he's been in a few comic books, but he hasn't been centralized in a long while and in a long series. So the fact that as a big Tom, and I'm a major Superman fan, to work within the Superman umbrella on this and to be featured in Superman comics during the future state event. It, it, I mean, I, I I don't even know what to say. It's just been absolutely amazing and totally fantastic. And I'm very, very happy to have been able to contribute to this story and make a long story short. My story helps to connect one of the Superman comics to the other Superman comic. Oh, that's rad. And I'll just leave, I'll leave it at that. So when you're
1: working at a, uh, on an event like that, writing for this thing that not only is, you know, has your story but, you know, so many other massively talented folks in their own right included in the deal. How is it dealing with editorial on this? Uh do they kind of guide you or they just kind of give you a parameters to to write within and and just say go go for it go
2: nuts? Well, I mean, editorial always has mandates. and Sorry about that. Editorial always has mandates. And when you're talking about something like DC Comics, which is a the oldest comic book company, mainstream comic book company, and one with, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but it is a very conservative universe in general. When you're dealing with that, you have to realize there are rules in place. And nobody I know... who I know who has worked with DC and people who I know who currently work at DC, nobody's trying to come in and flip the game upside down or or, or radically alter who those characters are. But you do usually get a little bit of wiggling room to bring in your own voice and come up with some really cool concepts that haven't been seen with those characters. I mean, you see that with Tom King when he wrote Batman or Scott Snyder when he was writing Batman. You saw that back in the day when John Byrne did Man of Steel back in 1986. You know, I mean, after all the post-crisis stuff. I mean, you see it all the time. You saw it when Chris Claremont was given X-Men way back in 1980, you know, because after, you know, him and John Byrne split, you know, Chris Claremont was allowed to write X-Men for the entire decade, you know? So when you think about it, you know, there's not a whole lot of changes you can make, but you can definitely make your voice known. You know, on these stories. So basically, yes, you do get a little bit of leeway, but you can't. You know, tear the universe apart. You have to be like Grant Morrison or somebody to tear the universe apart. So, and, and they don't let everybody do that. So, no, you're not allowed to go crazy, but you are allowed a little bit of a little bit of freedom. Awesome, awesome. So,
1: you were mentioning some some runs from you know. Back in the day, I'm sure you read like off the spinner rack when you were a kid. What was your jam? What, what got you into comics in the first
2: place? Oh, fantastic question. The, well, OK, so I, when I was I went to I went to Catholic school from first to sixth grade and right across the street from my Catholic school was a comic book store, believe it or not. Oh, it was nice. crazy. So the first comic book I ever purchased myself was. I don't remember the issue number, but back in the day, there used to be a a comic book called Marvel Tales featuring Spider-Man. And they used to reprint the Stanley Steve Ditko run of Amazing Spider-Man from the 60s. And that was my entry into comics. And the issue I bought was a reprint of the issue where Peter Parker and Flash Thompson fight in a boxing ring because he broke Peter's glasses and Peter just lost his temper and was like, dude, I'm done with you. And he had to, he, so, but the awesome part was during the fight, Peter had to not kill flash Thompson because <laughs> if, if you hit him too hard, he would literally kill him. So he had to figure out how to get out of the fight without killing him. And then flash, you know, Is distracted by something and Peter like barely taps him and then knocks him out, like completely knocks him out. It was awesome. And that was my first issue of any comic. And I think my second and third issues, believe it or not, it's crazy, was the issue where the new Brainiac shows up in the Superman universe. In the early um, 80s of DC Comics. And this is the one that looks like the Terminator endoskeleton. Like the, oh, like, yes. Like, like, like that's the Brainiac I know. And that's the only Brainiac I accept. I don't like any <laughs> other version of Brainiac. <laughs> but, because, no, it, they, that version, you know, this, this is my point about Brainiac. Like the fact he looks like a green skinned Lex Luthor, usually, which is stupid. You know, he should look terrifying. And when I was a kid, that version of Brainiac actually scared me. Like, I was terrified of that version because he just, like, did not care. He did not have a value on life. He just wanted to destroy everything and remake the universe in his image. And I felt like that was a great Superman villain. So I, I think it was Action Comics 583. I might be wrong, but it, I think it was Action Comics 583. I think. I'm probably wrong, but I can look that up. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I,
1: I think my my first comic ever about myself was an X-Men classic.
2: Mm. And it had like a really amazing... Nope, it was not Action Comics 583. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It, it, there, there was a cool like, a, a cool, like eight-pager with uh, Banshee in the back that just really blew my mind. It was about him when he worked for Interpol. So I was like, oh, they can do that? I didn't know they had backstories. So stuff like that I always thought was cool. But <laughs> so how how did you get into to the Thundercats reboot?
2: Whew, okay. When I had moved to Los Angeles, I had met several I connected with several comic sorry animation showrunners who were graduates from because i went to boston university i got my master's degree in boston university so what wound up happening was i connected with some of these people and one of the guys was a guy named jeff klein who was a who is still an animation showrunner and he had mentored a bunch of people over the years and one of the guys he mentored was a guy named michael jelnick jelnick who worked on uh, a bunch of stuff including the batman not not Batman the animated series, but the one called The Batman. And he also worked on Teen Titans Go. Still does, I think. You know, I, I don't know what he's doing now. But basically, what wound up happening was I had used some of my graduate school connections, and I had met with Jeff Klein, and he introduced me to Michael Jelenic, and then I sent some pitches over. He liked some of my my work, and he gave me a shot, and that's where my career started. That's 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 that's, awesome. that's, that's 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 the long and short of it. And by the way, the comic I'm referring to. Is Action Comics issue number five forty four. You are far off. <laughs> not not at yeah, all. Not not too far, but that's the one where Brainiac, where the robot Brainiac shows up, and I thought that was the coolest goddamn thing I'd ever seen, <laughs> 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 and the scariest. <laughs> so
1: what? What? How? did you get from Thundercats stage at Carter? Which, uh, admittedly, I, I didn't really see the Thundercat series. I don't think it was, you know. At the time, I was I just gotten married, and I oh. was working about seventy hours a week.
2: I don't no, think no. it was really made for me anyway. But no, it, well, well I'll, I'll say this: then I can tell you why what happened. The Thundercats show was when it was it was on Cartoon Network, and it came on eight thirty on Friday night on Cartoon Network. Now the problem was in twenty eleven, WWE SmackDown was on Friday nights at eight o'clock so the same people who would watch wwe smackdown were in theory the same population that would watch the thundercats reboot so when we came on nobody was watching because no one like when you watch a two-hour program or a one-hour program very rarely will you turn to another show at the half hour mark obviously you're not going to do that so there you go
1: Don't those idiots know wrestling's fake? Yeah,
2: what do you know? (laughs) (laughs) But
1: you, you went, you know, you you did a few other shows, but you, which eventually led you to Agent Carter. And I thought that show was so incredibly well done. And Mm -hmm. I I like a period piece anyway. But awesome. uh, So, what episode
2: did you write? Because you, you, it was season two, episode seven. The title was Monsters. The episode I wrote was the one where uh, Jarvis's wife, Anna, gets shot by Whitney uh, Frost.
1: Oh, I remember that one. That was good. D- isn't that when they had like the black goo, like the veiny stuff on their faces? Exactly. Oh, that was a good one. <laughs> Dude, okay. I freaking love that show, and then when they came out with the second season, I didn't think they would have a second season necessarily. So it was a uh, it was a surprise. It was a very like good surprise. I loved the hell out of that show. Oh my! You God. and me both, my friend. You and me both. And yeah, it, I was so bummed when it got when it got canceled. I think there's so much there that they could do, especially if they could go by decade. Because apparently, you know, Agent Carter had been. Uh, a member of shield shield for for the longest so they could you know ostensibly kind of take it from
2: then to now but <laughs> you are absolutely correct i mean we have well i can't get into all of that but yeah we we definitely had some plans and some ideas about where season 3 would have gone if we had gotten a season 3
1: that man that yeah that's amazing i'm i'm so happy you got to write that show and the show the episode that you're credited with oh my god that was great Your Andre the Giant biopic, Mm.
2: is that that happening? Well, I mean, I don't honestly know because what happened was I did the book with Lion Forge and IDW, and eventually Lion Forge took over everything in regards to the book, and they hired some screenwriters, (laughs) and I thought I would get a crack at adapting it because I have experience adapting comics and adapting uh, novels to screenplays. But for whatever reason, they they didn't hire me. And I was a little bit angry about that for a while. But the bottom line was that uh, I have no idea what the status is. I mean, I haven't heard a darn thing in years. So who knows what the actual status of that project is right now? I couldn't even tell you.
1: How did you how did you go about writing that in the first place? The the book what, was that something that you got you got asked to write or was it was this your idea?
2: No, no, no. What happened is I had signed a, a deal with Lion Forge Comics back when they were er, when they first started, and one of the books I that was on the table was the Orange Rated Giant, you know, biography graphic novel biography, and. The difference between the one that Lion Forge produced and the one that was done beforehand by Box Brown was that I got to interview Andre the Giant's daughter, Robin, oh, wow. and Robin gave me so many actual stories of his life that I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything about his family. I didn't know like that he even had a child. So. With that in mind, I was able to inject a little bit more of the personal story of Andrei Rusomov into that graphic novel than I I would have been able to without Robin's assistance. So yeah, Lion Forge knew I was a big wrestling fan, still am. I've been a wrestling fan my entire life. And I knew a lot about his in-ring stuff, but I knew nothing about the man. And because of Robin's assistance, I was able to understand And, you know, learn more about who he was as a human being. That's awesome.
1: Some of my earliest memories are watching him and Hogan back in the day.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, You're
1: you're just a few years older than I am. And that was such a WWF was such a massive thing for me as a kid. It's fantastic.
2: It's funny you say that because, you know, my. I'm more. I I still am much more of a fan of the old school Southern stuff, like the NWA. You know, Jim Crockett Promotions. Oh yeah. You know, Mid South. (laughs) You know the. You know all the UWF. You know Bill Watts. You know, like I like. You know the the grittier Southern stuff. You know, because being. I mean Maryland isn't the South South, but it ain't the North North either. Yeah, it's close enough. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Mason Dixon line. So my my point is is that you know when I was growing up. And this is crazy. Like when I was growing up, I had access to wrestling, every kind of wrestling, like the Northern WWF cartoony stuff and the Deep South blood and guts and barbed wire match stuff. And, you know, I I love that old school stuff. You know, in fact, you know, I did a graphic novel with Jim Cornette, you know, about, you know, the history of pro wrestling, you know, who was the manager, he was the manager of the Midnight Express and many other things he did over the years. So, yeah, I mean, I've been a wrestling fan my whole life. And, uh, you know, (laughs) that Andre the Giant book was just, you know, icing on the cake for me.
1: Wow, wow. That that must have been fun talking, you know, getting all those stories from from the old salts that that were actually in the ring. So so what do you ha- what do you have going on now that that you
2: that's coming up that we can talk about? Well, let's see. Other than well, let's see. The ju- I, I'm working on a Judge Dredd comic. Well, I finished a Judge Dread comic and the final issue should be out. It's called Judge Dredd False Witness. Issue 4 should be hitting the stand sometime this month. I don't know exactly when. I'm still working on Star Trek year five. I have two more issues to do, and that should be coming out sometime in later in 2021. Transformers Galaxy should also be coming out either this month or next month, the final issue, which is number 12. And let's see, is there anything, else? other than the stuff I'm doing right now, there's not a whole lot that I could really talk about. There are things coming in the future, but I simply cannot, you know. That, that is perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> Quick question,
1: Judge Dredd, writing Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. How was the reaction from the fans, especially from – Judge Shredd Judge is like a, an institution yes. in, in Great Britain. How, how was it received when an American writes the – because I'm sure <laughs> they love the, the movie in the 90s. Okay. That, I said that completely facetiously, by the way.
2: Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. How do the Brits think – what do they think about American writers of Judge Dredd? Okay. First of all, let's start at the beginning. I am, I am the first African-American writer of Judge Dread in history. That's ever. cool. That's awesome. That's number, that's number one. Now, I think that they, like, first of all, unfortunately, most people think Americans are stupid, you know, globally. We have that reputation, unfortunately. And sometimes our decisions globally make it look like we're really stupid. I mean, we're not. Yeah, yeah. We're not. <laughs> Americans are not stupid. People think we are. I mean, I have to, like, like I have a lot of international friends and every now and then, I have to be like, yo, watch your mouth, you know, because most Americans are not stupid, okay? And it pisses me off because, I mean, I'm not like Captain Flag waver, but I don't like nobody talking crap about the United States. I just don't, right? So that's number one. Now, with that being said, if you show the least bit of competency and an understanding of the Judge Dredd's character's history and who he is as a character, and understand that it's a satire. The, Judge Dredd is not the punisher. You're not supposed to cheer for him. Oh, yeah, and for if, sure. If you, if you understand that, then you understand Judge Dredd. Unfortunately, over the years, American and British writers, or UK writers, have written him way too much like Frank Castle, as opposed to writing him as Joseph Dredd, who should not be cheered, who is actually an awful person. Right. I love the character. I love what it the, the idea of it, but I also am fully aware that I'm not supposed to actually cheer for him. And if you've and I and I've read Judge Dredd from the 80s, I mean I've read all that stuff. And I know you're not supposed to cheer for him. So with that being said, um, it, it it was absolutely fantastic. I wrote a story dealing and I wrote this by the way, I wrote the story. Way last year, way before any of this pandemic stuff happened, way before all the anti-immigrant stuff was really in full effect. And everything in that story is dealing with immigration and pandemics. So oh, it, shit. It, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. So that's how I feel. But it, it, it was a great experience. That's all I have to say.
1: That's awesome. Do you, do you have any more Judge Shred stories that, that you
2: want to do eventually in the future? I would love to do some Judge Shredd stories, but I don't know if that window is still open. You know, I just don't know. I hear point. you I hear you
1: okay, so you have what is essentially like 20 plates at any given time spinning pretty so much what what do you do what what does brandon easton do to 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 chill to to take his mind off of the weight
2: of uh, the crushing weight of all your responsibilities well, uh, well honestly, before the pandemic, you know i mean i I go to Los Angeles is one thing i mean I have a love hate relationship with l a I mean, I don't like how it never rains, and I don't like some how some of the people behave. But one thing Los Angeles has that very few other cities has is a very strong cinema culture. There are movie theaters everywhere in this town, and most of them are showing classics. I mean, they they have the new, you know, the the current. Well, when when things are open, they have like the new, the big movie theaters show the new stuff. But they also have a bunch of movie theaters that show stuff from back in the day and stuff that we grew up on. And like you can, like any given time you can find a movie theater playing some movie from the eighties, you know, and it, it, it's crazy. Like I can go watch 2001 a space odyssey pretty much anytime I want on a big screen or Lawrence of Arabia or reservoir dogs or James That's Cameron's wild. aliens. I mean, that in and of itself is Absolutely amazing. And not to mention the fact that you can watch because of the massive Asian community and the different because obviously Asian encompasses a lot of different people. But when you're talking, there's a massive Chinese population, a massive Korean, a massive Japanese, meaning that there's also Chinese movie theaters, Korean movie theaters, Japanese movie theaters. You can see whatever you want to see from all over the world pretty much anytime you want. And that's the beauty of living here. So. Number one, I used to go to the movies all the time. The food here is fantastic. Some, Well, no, let me be more specific. Some of the food here is really fantastic. It ain't like the South. It ain't like the East Coast. <laughs> Definitely not. But if you want to eat healthy... Some of the most delicious, healthy food on the planet can be found in Los Angeles. So I used to, you know, go out to bars, you know, hit the hit the restaurant scenes, hit the movies, hit the hit the museums, hit the book. The bookstores are great here. You know, there's there's so much here to do. That's the one thing I can say about Southern California. So before the pandemic, I was, you know, you know, hitting the, I mean, I live in actually live in Long Beach, California, which is a little bit further south than L.A. And so I live in a beach city. So. Less than, like, 10 minutes from the beach at any given time, any oh, day. nice. Yeah.
1: That's got to have its advantages. What, what, what do you do? What,
2: what inspires you? I mean, I would say science fiction in and of itself is everything I've ever believed in. You know, like, I, I always believe in the idea of possibility. So possibility inspires me you know, what we can do. You know, when when I mentioned Superman earlier about how, you know, how the different versions of Superman appeal to different people, you know, I grew up with the Christopher Reeve Superman, which was really all about optimism and being the best you can be. And I was deeply inspired by that as a child. And also Yoda's speech in Empire Strikes Back about the nature of the force when Yoda says a thing about the uh, what did he say you know luminous beings are we not crude matter you know you must feel the force around you it penetrates us binds us you know so forth that great speech he gives when Luke says he can't do something that's what really inspires me stuff like that you know like the belief in something bigger and the belief that you can do good and I think more people need to believe in doing good that's that
1: is a great answer to that <laughs> I'm always struck by when people bring up. Just little bits and pieces of pop culture that just really just struck them. And I'm always fascinated by what I find because it's, it's never the same thing. And it's always the most unexpected, from the most unexpected thing. Because a lot of the time from the outset, people just kind of look at Star Wars. as like, that's great popcorn cinema. But there's always there's great stories there. Yes. And there's always something that, that catches people. So and now you're you're adding to that list of things that that catch and inspire people. And I'm so glad I'm so glad that we got to, to talk to you.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I mean, I, look, I'm very it took a while for us to get here, but I'm very glad that we did it. Hey,
1: man, dude, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I, I understand you just got off work not long ago, so I don't want to keep you on too long because I'm sure you're starving. First thing I want to do is get off. Yeah, I,
2: appreciate. <laughs> some I appreciate that. No, I'm, I'm good, man. I appreciate that. No, and then I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to talk. And, you know, I wish I could have gotten this done a lot earlier, but no, everything is fine. I'm very glad to be here and I really appreciate this conversation. And again, and I, and I tell everybody this when I mean it, is that you know? if you ever want to you know, do a part two and talk about more of my career or just talk about comics and stuff that we like growing up, I'm always going to be available for a follow-up if you ever want to do one.
1: Dude, my nerd ass could talk to you for four hours just flat out. So yes, anytime. Okay, <laughs> cool. I
2: look forward to it. So let's uh, set another time in the future, and um, I'll be happy to come back.
1: Dude, that sounds great. Hey, real quick, give a shout-out to your favorite local comic shop because we want those places to stay open.
2: Well, one of my friends opened a comic book store in Long Beach. It's called The Atomic Basement. And it's on, I believe, 3rd Street in downtown Long Beach. It's a small store. It's somehow surviving during the pandemic. The the guy who owns it is a guy named Mike Wellman. And I exclusively signed some copies of my books. And if you ever want a book that I've signed, particularly Transformers or Judge Dredd or whatever that's coming out, even Future State, I'll be more than happy to sign a copy and and Mike will ship it to you. So no matter where you are in the United States of America or even North America, if you contact Mike Wellman at the Atomic Basement in Long Beach, California, he will be happy to get in touch with me. And if you want some books signed or whatever, you know, we'll be happy to send them to you. Dude. That that's awesome. And again, atomic basement, atomic
1: basement, Long Beach, California. Brandon Easton, thanks again, man.
2: Thank you, and I really appreciate your time. And this has been great. And like I said, I really look forward to doing a part two. Uh, same here, man. Same here. I had a blast. Awesome. All right, take it easy, bro. Take care. Good night. Bye.
0: And we're back. That was great, guys. Thanks, Brandon, so much for coming on. That was great. I love learning about all that stuff. DC Future State looks incredible. And I might actually get me back into reading some DC Comics here uh, because I've been out of the game of reading the big two for a while. But Future State, uh, we've had a couple guys on who are working on that. And I've read the previews for it. It looks freaking amazing. But with that, I'm going to tell you this. You should go over to spoilerverse.com and check out all of our back issues. We have over 500 episodes to listen to tons of creators just like Brandon out there listening to uh, other topic episodes more fun stuff more other shows up there too like Bridge and the Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Nerds from the Crib. I mean so much awesome stuff up there and if you like beer over on Haphazard House Adventures my wife and I are doing an episode a day of a beer podcast so that's a lot of fun uh, for the Brewers Advent Calendar 2020 and uh, you can go there on the site as well and check out other articles and previews and reviews and go to the store and buy a t-shirt look fly as hell Help support the site, and you can go to scpod.us/slash discord and join our public discord server and come chat with us. There's just a lot of fun stuff you can do. But with that, I'm going to say it's a show and remind you that In Ocean's a podcast, we are Cthulhu, and it's Cthulhu you to do: open the mind and read more.